Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Today, I get to speak with Jay Feldman from the Energy Balance Podcast. I've been on quite the journey over the last several years of healing and learning more about wellness, and I'm always trying to deepen my understanding between the relationship of the food we eat and our physiology and how we feel. And Jay provides some very educational content that has really kind of upended the way I think about food uh, quite a bit. Now, granted, I've tried a lot of what some people would consider maybe extreme dieting practices when a new idea hits the mainstream or at least within the wellness field. I usually get my interests um, perked up and I like to tinker. So I will, I'm usually willing to try something and I try to be objective of whether it serves me well or it's time to move on. Um, I've learned about the bioenergetic field of wellness through Jay and his friend and colleague, Mike, through their podcast. And it's really um, been enlightening. It's, it's really, contradicted some of the beliefs I had and I've really enjoyed kind of tearing down those beliefs and learning something new about myself and health in general and I really wanted to share that with the audience the thing that really stands out that I've learned is believe it or not the value of sugar and over the last several years I've been leaning more and more into the world of um, lower carbohydrate intake in the name of gaining a more optimal health. And granted, there have been some benefits along that way. There's been some costs too that I haven't been very um, well able to identify clearly and understand. And I feel like there's been a recent pivot point where I've deepened my understanding about those effects 
from reducing carbohydrates into my diet. And because I've been enjoying and feeling so good from these recent changes, I did feel compelled to share with the audience in hopes that um, you could get some value out of it too. So thanks again for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. Jay Feldman, thank you for joining me on the Mindful Movement Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Les. So this is maybe the one podcast I've done where I feel like there's just no way that I'm going to get all my questions answered and be able to respect your time. Because over the last couple of months, I have been absolutely binging on your YouTube channel, which uh, you, with the help of your friend, colleague, Mike, um, do just a tremendous job presenting and educating a style, a concept of like, or a paradigm to view wellness through that is relatively new for me. And it's been uh, up, it's been shattering my world to some degree, to the point that my family thinks I'm crazy because I'm pouring maple syrup in milk. And I used to vilify sugar. And the people I've been talking to have been crazy or think I'm crazy. And I've just been sending them your way. Just go listen and hear for yourself. Um, you speak and educate on the bioenergetic um, view of health. Mm -hmm. yep. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Would you uh, start us off with like 101? Like, what's the, the macro picture? What does that even refer to, Jay? Yeah, so what we're talking about here is a lens through which we view health. And there are a lot of different lenses that we sometimes don't realize that we are looking through, whether it comes to a diet or, or exercise paradigm or a health paradigm. You know, it might be in a concept surrounding the idea that plant foods are good and animal foods are bad or vice versa. Or it could be an idea that we need to stress ourselves a little bit to get some benefit. There, there's all sorts of different paradigms that we use when we're viewing health and we don't always realize we're doing so. And the bioenergetic view of health is based around the fundamental concept that the energy that we produce in every single cell in the mitochondria that we normally call ATP is the driving force for our health. If we have enough energy, not only can we function well, but we can also regenerate uh, tissues and we can heal and recover and improve our health and function. And if we don't have enough energy, that's the thing that drives degenerative states and an inability to handle what our bodies are experiencing in their environment. And so when we look at that as the fundamental driver of our health, we can then orient our perspective around nutrition or supplements or any other aspect of health around this idea of how is that going to impact the amount of energy we have available, how much energy we produce or use, and then we can use that as an indicator of how it will affect our health. And that can be the driver of how we make our health choices. Okay. So one thing that stood out early that just, I guess, was like just a, a mind fuck to some degree is that um, sugar's not so bad. Uh, like I have been guilty of telling my clients that sugar to some degree is an enemy. And we are trying to manage it, manage the enemy. Mm -hmm. And because the fact that our body could make energy or ATP out of fat and muscle, obviously 
we should. And the first, one of the first things that really um, made a lot of sense to me that I resonated with was that doesn't, that idea that we run on sugar or glucose at the cellular level, and we can make that out of fat and protein isn't a reason to use fat and protein to make energy. It speaks to the importance of sugar. And why are we making it hard on our body to make it as opposed to just giving it what it's what it wants? Am I am I phrasing that some, somewhat accurately? Yeah. So of course we're starting out with one of the more controversial <laughs> aspects here of this view. And for anyone who's getting ready to turn the, the podcast off, I've been <laughs> in that place, right? I, I was recommending low carb. I was on low carb and keto and cyclical ketogenic diets and intermittent fasting and all those things that are meant to drive fat burning. I was heavily avoiding sugar for, you know, a decade, uh, if not more. You know, Me counting... too, for the record. I've been on that same journey. Yeah, yeah. And counting the grams of fructose I was getting, you know, that was, of course, among sugar being the enemy, fructose is the worst culprit there. And so I've totally been there and I've seen health through that view and of course have shifted that, that over time. But so I understand that perspective and believed it heavily and thought I understood some of those mechanisms. But as you're pointing out, there are some important caveats that aren't often discussed to that approach to health. And one is that even if we don't consume any sugar, we will produce carbohydrates endogenously inside our bodies. And that is a testament to how important those carbohydrates are. And not only will we produce it just from maybe a bit of fat coming in, but we'll also break down our own protein tissue, our own muscle to release amino acids to convert that to carbohydrate if we're not getting enough carbohydrates. In. And so as you're getting it, that is a, is a testament to how important carbohydrates are for our physiology at a, at a base level. And even if we're fully on a ketogenic diet, not consuming any carbs, our brain is still going to be using a decent amount of glucose, at least 30% of its energy needs. Even on a full ketogenic diet, we'll still have to come from glucose. If we're not on a ketogenic diet, it'll be closer to 100%. And there are other needs as well to other organ systems. And so that's kind of the baseline. And the important piece there is that in order to produce those carbohydrates, we have to activate all sorts of stress systems. Cortisol being the main driver of the conversion of protein, especially to glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis. And there's a major cost there. So that's an important piece, but I would say there's, we, we kind of have the flip side of that, which is actually not about getting the baseline level of carbohydrates, but actually the recognition that having larger amounts of carbohydrates as our fuel source is closer to optimal, is more supportive of our health. And if we look at it on that bioenergetic level on, in terms of what's happening with ATP production, yes, we can produce ATP from fat, we can produce ATP from glucose. And fat is a great energy source for when we have low energy demands. So when we're at rest, and our muscles are just you know, resting, maybe recovering a little bit, they'll use fat for energy. Some of our organ systems will use fat for energy. Our brain cannot use fat for energy. Certain other, you know, like our red blood cells can't use fat for energy. The reason for it specifically in our brain is because our brain is very high energy demands and it's very sensitive to oxidative stress. It's a delicate uh, organ. And so because of that, it can't use fat for fuel. And I think that is a great place to, to start or it, it really illustrates the difference here, the dichotomy between burning fats as a fuel instead of carbohydrates. And 
in that contrast, when we need high, like kind of a high octane fuel, when we have higher energy demands, when we want to be producing a lot of energy, the carbohydrates have to be that primary source. That's why our brain will use glucose as a fuel. And, and that, so we'll, and that's because if we use fat for fuel in the brain, it will produce more reactive oxygen species. Yeah. So, and, and, and you said our brain is sensitive to those reactive oxygen species. Yeah. So our brains have very high ATP demands, very high energy demands, and they're very sensitive to the reactive oxygen species. And fat is great as a kind of low burning fuel because it does produce a lot of reactive oxygen species. And because of that, we have to produce ATP very slowly. If we try to produce ATP quickly with fat, it will create a lot of oxidative stress and activate all the stress systems. So why and does the muscle want to use fat even in a low, like, why would it ever be better? If glucose is so good, why is it better for muscle to, why does it preferentially choose fat even at a low intensity, you know, activity or just, you know, sitting around? Yeah, the, the basic kind of evolutionary biology sort of answer there is fat is very beneficial as that kind of backup fuel source. It's very easy to store. When we store carbohydrates, we have to store them with three times their weight of water. So we are limited in how much carbohydrate we can store. It's very heavy to store it. And as we know, we can store body fat very easily. And that's great for if we needed to not eat for a long time, even though that's not ideal for our health, typically. Um, so that's kind of one reason. But the other reason is that that allows us to spare the carbohydrates for the areas that really need them. You know, our brain and our liver and kidneys, which are super high energy and fuel intensive organs. And so if our muscles use carbohydrate at rest as well, which will happen if you go on a very low carb diet, you know, most of the body will use carbs, but you'll be running out of that, those carbohydrates so quickly that you'll end up having to eat very frequently. And, uh, it's, it's not that it's unsustainable, but it's, it's basically going to end up stealing away the carbs from those other organ systems. If we rely too much on that, or if we just don't eat constantly. So it allows us to have a bit of a balance there, uh, where the areas that need it the most have the carbs available and the areas that are totally fine with the low energy output at rest can, can use fat. So from what I understand, basically we could store energy, a, a very small amount in our, in our blood, a, a little bit in our liver, but then our muscles could store it as glycogen, like short-term storage. But it, even though it stores it, it would prefer to spare that when the demands are higher and then run on fat. What? So the parts that prefer the glucose, like you just referenced the kidney, I think the, the liver, 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 I think I've heard you mention the nervous system and the brain. So mm -hmm. where are they getting that from? Are they getting that from the muscles when you're at rest? Typically not. So the muscle glycogen is only going to be used by the muscle. And we're normally saving that for intense activity. The liver is the main storage organ of carbohydrate for our, our nervous system and for the kind of circulation. So okay. our liver can store a pretty large amount of carbohydrate. At least 100 grams is normally typical, but it can store considerably more if we have really healthy liver function and we're eating a good amount of carbohydrates. Hmm. And so that's going to be, you know, our, as I was saying, our, it's hard to store carbohydrate. So our brain actually doesn't store very much carbohydrate at all. It's almost entirely reliant on the carbohydrate that's in our circulation. And that's from the carbohydrate we eat, or our liver can send some of that out as well if, if it's running low. And that's part of why we don't want our muscles stealing that, that carbohydrate. The muscles aren't going to really release the carbohydrate back out uh, for circulation so much.
Okay. Uh, another um, line, and I don't know if this came from Ray Pete, which I guess is one of the, uh, I don't know, godfathers of this system to some degree or mo to a modern, I mean, maybe there are people talking about it long before him, but um, it's a name that gets mentioned a lot along the way. And I've listened mm -hmm. to a little bit of him and it's, it's interesting. And uh, I do find myself where he loses me sometimes, partly because it's just a little too over my head and partly it's because like I can't accept that yet but I'm open-minded uh he's changed my mind about some things mm -hmm. but there's been this line uh try not to butcher it um energy and structure are interdependent at every level um it's a powerful statement and I've been thinking about it um I've been thinking about it also when I'm just like outside walking through the woods and looking at nature and say where does this how does this show up in all the different ways um, in regards to how you and Mike use it in your educational podcast and, you know, this framework you're looking through, what is the structure you're referring to? What is this relationship that you keep kind of coming back to between energy and structure? So the every level part is the fun part because what that means is we get to look at this on the cellular level all the way up to an organism all the way up to biology as a whole and societal organization and on from there and so what we're talking about it on the cellular level there's the the kind of simple view that we have in modern biology which is that our cells are just this kind of sack of water that hold these these organelles everything kind of functions independently. There's some great evidence that especially has been put forth by the work of Gilbert Ling and followed up by Gerald Pollack, whose uh, his work I think is more well known and a lot more digestible, that identifies that the main system through which our cells function is through the energetic relationship between water and protein and and energy. And so what happens is that our cells are not, instead of them just being the sack of, of what's called bulk water, just regular water, when the protein and energy interact, it allows for the water in the cell to become structured. And this is called structured water. And so the concept here is that that is what allows for our cells to function. And the more energy that's available, the better we can structure that water. And there's all sorts of lines of evidence for this and the relationship with the ionic gradients, the electrolytes, but also relationships with you know, carbon dioxide and ATP and function. And so we, you know, we can think of it in those terms, in, in terms of what's going on on the cellular level, the more energy, quite literally, the more structure, it's something that happens kind of autonomously when there's more energy there, it's a natural phenomenon. And you see that again on the organ system level as well. So if you want to look between organisms, if you look at our complexity versus the complexity of maybe a single celled organism, something that's very, very simple. If you, the idea is that we are able to function in the way that we are because we have much more energy being produced and streaming through us. And that is what allows us to organize ourselves in the way that we do. And you can kind of see that in terms of the capacity for energy production among species and that correlation with lifespan. Uh, and, and again, you see that within the bodily systems, but then you see it on a larger level as well, maybe as far as a society that is more abundant and has more energy available in those terms mm -hmm. and that breeding potentially more 
empathy, more cooperation, greater function compared to a society that's functioning on scarcity where uh, there's much less of a cooperative mindset. Uh, so that's just a kind of peeking into some different uh, levels through which we can see that relationship between energy and structure. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I've heard you mention like the more energy you have, the more structure you can create and the more structure you have, like the more energy you could harness and all those things require energy. Even like the way we think about others, we are utilizing energy just to have those thoughts, even though they they seemingly just arise from nowhere, there's an energy required for them to emerge. Yeah, I mean, if you're physiologically stressed out, if you're dealing with some major chronic health issues, if you're under the influences of cortisol and adrenaline, it's a lot harder to feel empathy. It's a lot harder to care about others. You have your, it's a natural phenomenon that you wanna care about yourself so that you can improve and get to a more comfortable place. And yeah, I, I, we think of our thoughts, we think of our mental health as something independent from those physiological effects, but I would say that they're each just products of the other in many ways. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned structured water. I noticed there's a lot of products on the market now, and I'm guilty of buying, trying, even promoting. I'm very, I wouldn't say I'm gullible, but I want to believe things work. Like, and first, I, it's not hard to convince me of something. Um, it's a blessing and a curse, I think. And I wonder, like, after learning that if our cells are doing their job well, if we're optimally taking in enough of the right kind of fuel and there's not a lot of interference in our ability to create energy out of that fuel, our bodies should, in theory, be structuring water the way that serves us well on their own. Um, and I wonder if like, the mass like collective move towards low carb in the wellness sphere has created a um, like a hole where we're trying to fix it with products that supposedly structure our water when we should just be doing that. I wonder. Yeah, that's my general orientation as well. Partially also out of skepticism, right? I mean, there's the idea that if we're not creating the structured water ourselves, we can consume something that has that structure already in it and that'll translate to cellular energy is a great idea. And, and I hope that there is something of value there, but I am you know, coming from a place of skepticism for a couple of reasons. One is I don't think that we have, uh, that we have that kind of drawn out. I don't think that we see, there's not enough research or mechanisms, I think that is elucidated there. The other thing is that, you know, just considering the physics of it or the, like the, all the things that have to happen between, let's say we were drinking structured water and that actually leading to cellular energy. I mean, there's a lot of physical and chemical things that are happening between those, those places. And so I'm, that also leads to some question as to how much that can really be transferred and in what capacity, uh, and then the last part is, as you were saying, which is that I, I prefer to place my focus on the things that I know are going to affect our cellular energy availability and directly affect the structuring of water there. And I'm pretty 
skeptical of the idea that we can overcome those things by consuming any amount of structured water uh, anyway. It, it, like how long or how much energy is really going to be held in there? Is that going to, how long is that even going to power us for if we're doing everything else that's not going to be supporting that on the cellular level? I can't imagine that it would be something that dramatically outweighs hmm. the baseline processes that are supposed to be creating the structured water inside the cells. Gotcha. I want to sidestep to stress a little bit, if that's all right, Jay. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've been going inward for years doing different mindfulness-based practices, whether it be meditation, lots of variations of that. And along the way, I become very aware of like my stress level, also maybe a blessing and a curse. Um, but I have, I feel like a good barometer of mm -hmm. if, some intervention helps with my stress in like, you know, real time. And there's some technologies out there that have been helpful. Most things that are helpful are like the most basic things, like take your shoes off, go stand in the yard under the sun and take a few breaths. <laughs> but there's something that also stood out early in my education through your channel is that sugar is anti-stress some level. And again, that kind of rattled around my head for a while without an easy place to sit with. And since then, I've tested that theory because I do feel like I have a good barometer. Um, I'm quick to get stressed. And I'm also able to notice when it's at it, where ease overpowers the stress. So there's been times where I'm my stress level is elevated, which I assume is just me experiencing these stress hormones like cortisol. And I know there's a few more. I think you mentioned uh, like whether it's glucagon and neuropen mm -hmm. neuroepinephrine. Am I yep, mentioning yep. that? Glucagon, epinephrine, which is also adrenaline. Right. So I don't know which one of those I'm feeling when I'm stressed, but some combination, I assume. And I will literally go eat sugar. Sometimes straight like organic cane sugar, put a teaspoon in my mouth, you know, look around and see if anybody, anybody watching me this, I don't want my family to think I'm this crazy. And it works. Like if I have sugar and surprisingly, like sometimes it's a lot, like I'm, I'm starting to wonder instead of what's the minimum effective dose, how much could I get in? Like what's, <laughs> Where's the ceiling here? And yeah. <laughs> we're, which is like, I mean, it's really hard to reconcile this coming from a decade of trying every diet out there and none of them recommended sugar. None of them. And it tastes great. I'm swigging maple syrup. I'm eating honey straight. Uh, yeah. I'm eating dried fruit with that has like, sugar it feels like i'll get dried organic pineapple that feels like it's dipped in sugar like it's mm -hmm. coated with sugar and within i don't know 10 minutes my nervous system shifts just like it would if i did a half hour meditation practice or something like i would i can get a shift i could use my breath or my intention i create that shift but this is like just happening which makes me wonder what kind of stress have I been creating for so long by starving myself something that my body just prefers to have? And maybe a long time ago, 
our lives weren't as chronically stressful and maybe we didn't need as much for that purpose. But I feel like life these days, because culture and society is fairly stressful for pretty much everyone I come in contact with, um, really without exception, everybody seems to be dealing with way more than they seem they want to deal with. And here this like this thing I've been vilifying forever literally goes right to that point, like right to the heart of that feeling of stress called anxiety, unease, and settles me. What's going on there? Like, does that mean I'm in an acute deficiency of carbohydrate and just providing that makes my nervous system happy because it has its preferred fuel? And, and then those hormones reverse and then the hormones go down. And what I'm feeling is a reduction of those hormones. Or is it like, because I'm burning that, I'm producing more carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is the signal for my tissue to be for hemoglobin to un to unload the oxygen into tissues and that settles it. Do you do we have a grip or do you have a grip on like what's actually going on there? Yeah, so this was you know, I was this was one of the things that flipped you know, my world on its head as well. And uh just completely mind-blowing because when you're in that place of of low carb, there's no discussion of this concept of this yeah, this, this physiology at all, it's, you know, if you're stressed, we go to meditation, we go to magnesium, you know, we go to better sleep or something like that, without any consideration of what that stress actually is on the cellular physiological level, and why sugar then directly helps to oppose it. And so what's actually going on when we're experiencing physiological stress, which also goes hand in hand with anxiety and the feeling of stress in your, you know, in your brain, but also in your whole body, that process is brought about by a, an energy deficiency. So our cells are having trouble getting enough ATP produced. And that is the main thing that triggers the stress response. What happens first is when they're having trouble producing enough energy, and this could be because we went for a run, maybe we're running. And so we're using a lot of that energy. Maybe it's just, we've gone a long time without eating. Maybe we were exposed to something that kind of triggered a reaction in our brain that started using a lot of energy there. Regardless of the cause, all of these things cause a depletion of that energy. And the first thing that will happen is those cells will start to take up carbohydrate from the circulation to try to use that fuel to produce more energy and slow down or stop the stress, uh, which is caused directly by that energy deficiency. Normally, there's not that much carbohydrate circulating in the blood, just enough for a little bit, maybe for a minor stressor. And so what has to happen is we have the activation of these backup pathways, which are the stress hormones to further help us deal with that stress. And so that's the adrenaline or epinephrine, the glucagon and the cortisol. And they're each produced at different levels of stress. And so what these things do is a couple of things. The first is that they increase the provision of glucose into our blood. So they cause the release of glucose from the liver to help provide that fuel for whatever areas, whatever tissues are needing to produce more energy. If that's not enough to handle the stress, they'll start to also, well, actually, even in the beginning, they'll start to also increase the release of fat as that backup fuel. So at least we have something there to also try to produce enough energy to stop the stress. And if that's not enough, we'll keep producing more and more of these hormones until we can turn that stress off. And these hormones don't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be under the influence of 
cortisol typically. I mean, you can get the kind of runner's high, you can get the adrenaline from a cup of coffee, but when we have those feelings, when we don't want them, it's, it doesn't feel good. It leads to that feeling of, of being stressed out, especially the cortisol will. And the best way to turn those stress hormones off is to prevent their need in the first place by providing the fuel that they're trying to provide. So if we then provide those carbohydrates, it immediately turns off those stress hormones. It'll increase insulin a little bit and both carbohydrate and insulin are in direct opposition of the stress hormones, direct opposition of cortisol. And this is something that, again, I was low carb for years, never was this presented in this way, but th those are known to be direct opposites as uh, is, is the glucose with, with some insulin versus the car, the cortisol, okay. adrenaline and glucagon. And so if you take in a bit of those carbs, you get a little bit of insulin as well. The insulin helps to uh, take that glucose and bring it to the cells so that they can use it to produce energy. And all of those things will turn off the stress hormones. So the quickest way, if we're under the influence of the stress hormones to turn them off is by providing carbohydrates. You of course have been mentioning sugar and sugar is something that I, you know, that word is something I tend to use interchangeably with carbohydrates, but of course there's a lot of there, there's a lot that is built into that word sugar nowadays. And so I do want to mention that what a lot of people call sugar is not sugar. You know, if you're talking about a donut or some sort of heavily processed garbage with vegetable oils and, you know, processed wheat flour and added fake vitamins and things like that, there is probably a bit of sugar in there, but there's also a ton of other things that are legitimately problematic. And so I'm not saying eating a donut is the best way to turn the stress off, although it will do it. You know, I'd rather we didn't get... evolve with the infrastructure for donut, but the infrastructure for the sugar is not just there, but it's there and it's prioritized to such a level that if you're low in it, your body will literally start to tear down the walls to burn the fire. Like a moment ago, you mentioned the quarter, the stress hormones will go up triggering signaling i guess somehow the liver to to get more sugar in circulation and to get more fat in circulation which mm -hmm. sound on the surface great because most people are like oh, i'd like to have less fat but it's like that's fat has a not just an energetic component there's a structural component like your body is made of unlike being really i guess it's not really made of carbohydrates it could store it but we have parts, whether they're parts of our nervous system or some of our organs, like brain, that are literally made of fat. And the idea of, well, let me ask you, does the body, when it does liberate fat from structure to help out to get more energy, is there an order of where it pulls it from? Like, does it pull it from the fat we don't want around our belly first before it pulls it from a myelin sheath or something? Do we know? Yeah, it definitely does. The So the on the structural side, the bigger concern is the protein. So if we're going for a while without carbs, we will be breaking down our protein tissue to convert that into carbohydrates. Uh, cortisol is a main driver of that. And so in people who have excessively high levels of cortisol, it will create that state where it'll tear down muscle, it'll tear down organ tissue to convert it to glucose to use it for energy which shows how much we have to prioritize energy, of course. Uh, when it comes to the fats, we'll normally be liberating that from, sometimes from the liver itself, sometimes from the adipose tissue, 
those are going to be the main places. Okay. It's, you know, over time, if we have low fat availability, it will, it will impair our ability to rebuild myelin sheaths and things like that. But it's not so much of a concern in the immediate stress response. And what you're kind of getting at is this other idea that maybe these stress things are good because it does liberate fat and we want to have more fat liberation to get rid of body fat. And the, we can dig into that, but the short kind of answer there is just because we're liberating more fat doesn't actually mean that we are storing less fat. It doesn't mean that we actually end up with less body fat. And so we have these studies where they look at a low carb ketogenic diet and there's way more fat burning, there's way less insulin and uh, way more fat release, way more lipolysis via these stress hormones. But at the same time, there's way more fat storage. So there's actually net less fat loss versus the high carb diet if they're you know, if they're both equal. Interesting. And, and when you mention, uh, you really want to avoid the protein destruction to make energy. In, in my experience, I've been working out fairly the same way for a long time. And just recently, I was looking over some of my old videos. I've done these like mindfulness based tips, these little videos, and I'm looking at myself and I mean, before my health journey, I was just shy of 240 pounds. And it was all fat, basically. And I got down to 153. Wow. Um, and then I basically have gone from 153 up to like 205 right now without really changing my workout or my protein intake. I've just changed. So I put on a ton of muscle and I haven't added protein and I haven't changed how I'm lifting. I've really just increased the carbohydrates and primarily sugary, easy to digest carbohydrates. And it really makes me wonder how much pro like, was I just spinning wheels trying to build muscle and constantly tearing down my muscle because I was chronically stressed from being, I don't know, under carbohydrated. <laughs> Carbohydrate deficient. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I like to phrase it that way. And of course it's, not a, a real physiologic deficiency because we'll produce it when we don't get enough, but I would say it's deficient relative to optimal. Right. And yeah, it, and we see it on the opposite side. We're seeing a lot of these studies now looking at intermittent fasting and looking at the low carb diets, showing that they do increase the loss of fat-free mass, the loss of muscle and maybe even other, you know, bone tissue and things like that, because they're constantly tearing down protein to produce carbohydrate. And that's not a great place if we're trying to put on muscle or if we're trying to not lose our protein tissue, which we don't ever really want to be doing that for most right. people. So uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not ideal. And as you're getting at, typically we don't need more protein when it comes to building muscle. Uh, typically we just need more carbohydrates and we need a lot less stress, we need a lot better recovery and a lot less protein breakdown. And they find that as well. The whole idea that we need to be eating, you know, a gram per pound or more of protein really hasn't been supported even in the top athletes, even in the the bodybuilders or people who are really focused on putting on muscle normally between 0.6 and 0.7 grams per pound is found to be enough you know, to maximize the amount of muscle that'll be built. Uh, and I normally say 0.6 to 0.8, just to give a little buffer there. But, uh, yeah, we, what we really need is a lot more carbohydrates and often more fat too, depending on the individual, if they're using a lot of fat with their workouts or, uh, you know, but day to day be life because the muscle uh, prefers the fat when at rest, there's really a lot of value in just putting on some muscle to manage your, to manage the, the fat li lipolysis in a more healthy way. And I remember uh, I was going to a gym uh, years ago. 
um, I, I was going to get coached and there was a guy that was uh, another trainer was working at the gym and he said something because I was like trying to get in shape forever like and I made a lot of progress but I never got what I considered to be like a lean athletic physique even though I was kind of doing all the things that the athletes were doing in the gym at least and he said it's so much easier uh, to maintain leanness with a little muscle mm. um, which I think really speaks to like to manage the body composition you're better off like instead of trying to lose fat manage your stress and uh, methodically slowly put put on enough muscle and then let the muscle do the work for you because at rest for the majority of the hours of the day the muscle is going to be working on that body composition goal for you by using utilizing that fat for fuel when the demands are really low. Um, and what I've been recently surprised at is how easy it's been to put on muscle and with adding the carbohydrates. And, uh, and I've tried some really high protein diets. I've gone strict carnivore for a little, a few times and felt great for like a week. And then the stress kicks in, the sleep gets, impaired like the problems arise but even that like didn't put on muscle as easy as just adding some carbohydrates so that's been a kind of exciting thing to you know discover along this way um it's just been a lot easier i do feel like i've put on a little bit of extra weight with that i'm not like freaking out about it yet it doesn't feel bad i can't tell if it's like fat or just water you said earlier that it takes um, three times, what did you say? Carbohydrates require three times their weight in water, three times their weight in water. Um, why is that? Do we know? Is that because like glycogen is water soluble and it sits in water in the muscle or that's a great question. I'm sure that it's known. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, for every, you know, gram of glycogen, we're storing, we're storing another three grams of water with it. And so that can be a part of, of that equation is, you know, if you're storing an extra couple hundred grams of, of glycogen, that could be a couple pounds, but yeah, we're talking a few pounds here. Normally it's not, it's not a ton, gotcha. but it is an effect. And it is part of why if somebody first drops carbohydrates a lot, they will see a big shift in terms of water weight. And that'll, you know, people like to see that initial shift on the scale, not only water weight, but also food weight too. You have a lot less food in your intestines. And so it is a, a quick way to show some shifts right. in numbers on the scale that are independent of body fat. Yeah, I've experienced that a few times. And I've also with that, it seems like probably because or in related in relationship to losing the water, um, the electrolytes got a little wonky, like I wasn't holding on to them as well. And now that I'm eating more carbohydrates, I find that I don't have to tinker with like electrolyte powders as much. And it's just it's like regulating itself, which seems a lot more natural or like reasonable. Like you shouldn't need to open up a couple packs of some fancy electrolyte drink just to live well. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's a function of because you're storing more carbohydrate, you're storing more water um, and you're not always like losing water. And thus, you, I don't think you can really lose water without losing electrolytes with it. That's certainly part of it. Part of it also has to do with the actual structuring of water in the cells. Part of it has to do with the activation of the stress systems as well. So when we think about the structuring of water in the cells, that's what actual hydration is. We don't want that bulk water that's just kind of sitting. Uh, we want 
water that's structured with, and it includes all the electrolytes as well. And that requires energy. And so when we aren't maintaining that energy well, it allows for influx of, of bulk water and basically a state of poor hydration uh, due to the lack of energy, essentially. And it also causes the loss of various minerals. And so that's a piece of it. And there's, so that'll happen when we're not getting enough energy in, but it'll also happen under stress. So there's a lot of overlap between our stress systems, and that's because they all function together. And so when you have, let's just say, low blood sugar, that not only activates cortisol and all of those stress hormones, but it also activates some of the stress hormones involved with electrolyte regulation. So one of the main ones that activates is aldosterone. And aldosterone causes us to retain sodium, but it causes us to lose potassium and magnesium. So this can be part of the reason why you end up with a lot of electrolyte imbalance when you're relying on those stress systems. And to kind of close that loop a little bit, any of these things that, that involve the avoidance of carbohydrates, you know, the flip side of what we were talking about, carbs are anti-stress. And when we avoid the carbs, we are entering a stress state. It is, those things go absolutely hand in hand. We know that a low carb diet mimics starvation it mimics fasting. All of those things directly involve stress. It makes sense because of what physiological stress is, right? That depletion of energy. But it also makes sense in terms of biology. If we're as uh, an organism, as an animal, in a period where we don't have a lot of fuel available, we enter a state of stress and activate all these backup systems so that we can survive. It involves turning our metabolism down so that we can live for longer without food. It involves retaining certain you know, minerals like sodium. It involves uh, shifting toward fat burning to, as a mechanism of slowing our metabolism down. It involves trying to spare glucose because we talked about how glucose, if we don't get any from our diet, we have to produce it from protein. And we don't want to, we don't want to, if we, if we can, we want to try not to reduce or tear down all of our muscle and protein structure. So we try to shift toward fat and we start producing ketones to make up for some of our glucose needs. There's still going to be some glucose needs, but we can reduce those. Those are all parts of that stress system. Uh, and that's, largely why we don't want to be entering into that. It involves all of the adaptations to stress, which involve turning our metabolism and our function down. So all these things go hand in hand. And as a result, when we're doing the opposite, when we're eating in a way nutritionally that lowers stress, meaning having enough carbs, having enough sodium and other nutrients, uh, having enough calories as a whole, those things are definitely going to make it a lot easier to retain a healthy balance of let's say electrolytes among other things do you know why aldosterone does that why does it make you retain sodium and and lose i guess so sodium and potassium they just have an inverse relationship like they're always switching sides to some degree yeah yeah um uh so do you know why does aldosterone do that yeah so Chris, does that serve so we can think it's it's most uh, direct relationship is with our blood volume and circulation. So when we have low sodium in the blood, aldosterone increases to retain our sodium. And that's because low sodium in the blood leads to low blood volume. So there's not a lot of blood in our circulation. And that's a problem. We can't transport right. nutrients. We can't transport waste or anything like that. We can't transport red blood cells for oxygenation. So aldosterone is one of those main signals when we're under stress to upregulate those things, to get our circulation back, to get our blood volume back. It just has to do it at a cost. And so, so if we're, go ahead. Yeah, just as an example, real quick, if we're exercising, we want to have some of that aldosterone release so that we can maintain our oxygenation to whatever extent we can and maintain the circulation of, of different nutrients and our, you know, transporting through the, the vasculature, through the circulatory system. Okay. So in the state of stress, um, 
which can be caused by the lower carbohydrate intake, we're losing water, which loses sodium. Our body doesn't like that. This hormone aldosterone triggers or upregulates a process to retain that, to stop that. And in doing so, we'll lose other minerals like potassium, which is also not good for its own set of reasons. It's not good to lose the potassium. We want to have potassium. We want to have it in the right place. But yeah, we lose potassium and magnesium as well. And those are, of course, not something we want. We don't want to be losing those minerals. It's funny because I have had to supplement with magnesium. And it's hard for me to explain verbally why, but I know that when I take it, it's like, oh yeah, I can't live without this. It's hard to like qualify what I'm getting out of it, but it's like my body knows I need it. And I wonder, like, I wonder how many supplements I've taken over the years that have been trying to patch the hole of a compensation I've created because I'm trying to restrict carbohydrates. And yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm grateful because I've gone through all these diets and I've learned these lessons my hard way and I could maybe help others shortcut that and not go through the same like painful um, roller coaster that I have, but I'm just like amazed because in the, in the health world, it's such a common message. Like it's the answer to so many things, lower carbohydrates. And I know that when I lower them, my body comp improves temporarily, but it's like at what cost and is that sustainable? And it makes me wonder what's an ideal body comp anyway. Like I'm starting to believe, you know, and this is, you know, not, <laughs> I'm not like a scientist, but I'm starting to believe that you're better off having 10 pounds excess fat as opposed to one ounce, not enough. Like abundance is, is a good thing as compared to scarcity, like a little bit of scarcity over time who knows how problematic that is? Um, you know, a 5% deficiency might not sound like a lot until you compound it by two decades, something. And what does it, what does it equate to? You, you mentioned, I, I don't know how familiar you are, but um, one of the things that a lot of people that go low carb, especially, I guess, people that go to a, a very meat dominant diet, which I've tried a few times, um, they deal with is strange outcomes after the initial, I feel great phase. And one of them being uh, related to oxalates. Mm. And I don't know how familiar you are, but um, you know, they talk about oxalate dumping as, you know, most people that go down that route, they spent some time with a high oxalate diet because they were eating supposedly healthy, which uh, all the high oxalate foods seem to be in the health food category. And then they bioaccumulate. And then when you stop them, there's this concentration gradient that changes and your body starts to dump it. And as it dumps, you get some immunological responses. So I've heard a lot of people kind of detail stories that kind of parallel um, this process. And I've dealt with it a bunch of times, but then after years, and they say it could take a long time to finish dumping, but then after years of not eating like extremely low oxalate intake, I was still getting it. Mm -hmm. which raised the question of, um, is your body just producing it more? Because your body can't use it, but it can produce it. And then recently I learned that the pathway that we use to produce it can be stimulated or upregulated 
through gluconeogenesis, which was like, holy shit, have I been putting my body in a state of stress and as a byproduct that the sugar is so important that not only will your body tear down its structure to make it, whether it be fat or more importantly, what we don't want to do is protein, your body will endure the production of ammonia to do that, which is toxic. It will endure the production of an oxalate, creating a shard of glass that now your body has to excrete either through your stool, your kidneys, your skin, or your eyes, which none of which are great outcomes. Like it's, it's like the sugar is so important that your body will create glass and rip it through your body to get it out just to get sugar. And at first, the oxalate dumping thing seemed pretty rational because of what my history was. But after years of not eating it, like, well, how could it not have gotten out enough? Like, I'm still making it. And then I hear this, that gluconeogenesis is at the heart of that endogenous production of oxalate. And I wonder how many people out there that are dealing with this oxalate pr problem that keep looking at their diet to fix it by reducing, 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 um, maybe it's just a complete wrong angle. Like maybe there are, maybe there's a lot of people like that that are, and I don't even know if this is absolutely true. I know that when I took the test, my oxalate excretion was high, even though I haven't consumed it in a long time. And I knew I had a lot of symptoms that speak to it, like literally having granular substances, sandy substances, like come out of my skin. Um, and which is freaky, but, um, it's pretty wild that the body will do that to itself. And to me, it kind of goes back to how important is that sugar? Cause now that I'm increasing it, a lot of that's getting better, like significantly better. The immunological re reactions, which I thought were from food or from unleashing or dumping old stores of this poison, um, might not be that at all. It might just be you're in a state of stress because you're starving your body of its favorite fuel. Yeah, what a concept. <laughs> what a, man, what a concept. I'm so grateful that I've stumbled uh, upon your stuff. And just another plug for the listeners, Jay Feldman, Jay Feldman Wellness, your podcast that you put together with your friend, Mike, I'm sorry, what's Mike's last name? Fave, Mike Fave. Mike Fave. And uh, I would love to get Mike on the podcast too. I'm not a big fan. As I mentioned, is like multi-person Zoom calls that get a little hectic. But um, the two of you together do such an outstanding job. Uh, you work so well together at conveying a message first broadly um, that's very easily digestible. And then like that extra layer of kind of nerdiness for those that want to double click it a little deeper. It's a, it, it works really well. And I'm really grateful that you did it. And it's so systematic. Like, I don't know how I first saw it on my feed, but once I did, I, I basically went to episode one and just like went through the list. And I've, I don't know if I've ever binged on a channel so methodically and so consistently. <laughs> and I feel like I got, um, you know, really important education from it. So I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the kind words. I mean, that's, those are some high, so that's some high praise there. So I appreciate it. And uh, the name of the podcast, by the way, is the Energy Balance Podcast, if oh, anyone's sorry. trying to search for it. The Energy um, Balance Podcast. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, where did I want to go? Oh, there was another thing I wanted to bring up because this is, I think, also a common misconception. Um, and I'm totally guilty of this in the past, looking at 
the amount of energy that we could get from a type of fuel, like a, a certain macronutrient. And most people know this concept that carbs and protein, uh, you could get four grams. There's four, gra there's four grams of calories. Calories is, you know, kind of uh, somewhat irrelevant measurement of energy. Um, and fat is nine grams. And um, I think there's also like alcohol might be seven and mm -hmm. I'm not sure what a ketone puts out if it's measured the same way, but for our purposes, like the, the three main ones, the carbohydrates, the protein and the fat are the most commonly mentioned. And it was always like, it just seems so common sense that because fat gave you nine calories of potential energy, not even energy, but potential energy, that it just obviously is more efficient of a fuel because you get more energy. And it that theory, you guys speak, lacks this very important variable of time. And that looking at that is like not asking the right question. And I think you propose the question as, the, the real question is if you had unlimited availability of carbohydrate or fat, given a fixed amount of time, what produces more energy as a more relevant framework? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Why does carbohydrate, sorry, cut you off there. Like what, why does it produce more? Why is it better? Yeah. When, so when you layer in time. So we've got, as you're saying, a really important concept, which is that per gram of weight, carbohydrates have quote, four calories, protein will have four calories, fat will have nine calories. If we look at the ATP potential of fat and, and carbohydrates, it's about similar, you know, it's similar. The ATP potential for one gram of, or one molecule of fat is much higher to much larger molecule, much more carbons and everything. Um, so you have a lot more potential energy per weight, but that doesn't say anything about the system through which we produce energy, because what those numbers are based on are two things. In terms of calories, it's based on if you were to burn that fuel, how much heat is produced. And we are not lighting fat on fire inside our cells and, and using that, you know, capturing that heat and using that to, to function. Uh, instead, we use these biochemical pathways to remove the energy from the fat or from the carbohydrate and convert that to ATP. So that's part one is calories are based on burning it in what's called a calorimeter has nothing to do with the physiological processes of producing ATP. But even if we look at ATP potential, there's much more potential of ATP and fat versus carbohydrate. But that doesn't say anything about the process of converting that to ATP and all the differences there. So it's similar to, you know, as a maybe an easier analogy is we could have a, a car and we could put gasoline in it or we could put, let's say, corn oil in it. And I don't actually know which is more dense in terms of calories, right? Which is actually better, you know, which would release more heat, but you can put all the corn oil you want into a car and it's never going to run better than if it has gasoline. And that has nothing to do with the potential energy that's in there. It has to do with the way that the engine functions. You can put a lot of things in the car that have potential energy that will not make the car move, that will not make the engine work. Uh, probably cause a lot of problems. So our bodies are the same way. And there is a biochemical process that has different steps between fat and carbohydrates. And when we produce energy from fat, there are a few different biochemical signals that require us to slow the energy production process. And largely this comes down to an increased production of reactive oxygen species. 
due to a difference in ratio between FADH2 and NADH that are produced. So this is some biochemistry here, uh, something that maybe somebody wants to dig in more, you can check out my podcast or some articles on it as well. But essentially, because of that effect, fat produces more reactive oxygen species when it's trying to produce energy, and those can create a lot of damage in our cells. So there is that causes the, uh, the process to slow down. It basically is a way of, of protecting ourselves from too much oxidative stress, and it makes it so that when we have this time factor, we have to produce energy more slowly from fat versus carbohydrates. And so with the carbohydrates, they're much, I would say, more efficient. If we want to use efficiency, I would say in its most accurate way, in that they produce much less exhaust, much less oxidative stress or reactive oxygen species when they're, when they're used fully to produce energy compared to fat. So we can run that process much faster. The engine can move faster and we can produce a lot more energy. And maybe that means that we go through two and a half molecules of carbs for every fat. It actually would be more because we can produce it even faster, but it has nothing to do with one molecule versus, versus one molecule. It has to do with how well we can use each of those, which one is more efficient. And so this is why like these biochemical reasons go hand in hand with the larger biology. It's all built around this, this biochemistry in, in a way where this is why we use fat as our storage. This is why we use fat for our low energy needs because it's really not as efficient. It's much better for a low, slow burn. And if we're starving, we want to rely on our fat stores. If we're under stress, we want to rely on that. We want to uh, rely on just enough energy so we can conserve as much as possible. And so that dichotomy is, is really central. Just as a little caveat, because I know we've talked about fats and carbs a lot, I'll, a big objection here will often be related to ketones. And some will say, hey, well, don't ketones work very well? Don't they oxidize well? Can't our brain use ketones? And that's true. So our brain can use ketones and it can use glucose. It cannot use fat. Ketones and glucose are pretty similar. They're both used much more efficiently than fat. The problem with ketones is the process that we need in order to produce them necessitates stress, necessitates stress hormones. We have to have the influence of glucagon, adrenaline, and or cortisol to produce those ketones. So if we want to take some exogenous ketones, that's okay. I don't have as much of an issue with that. But if we want to get to a state where our bodies are producing ketones, even though they are good fuel, getting into that state requires the stressful experience, which has all these negative uh, side effects or direct effects, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of a, that relationship there with the basics of the biochemistry of producing energy from these things and how they relate to our biology or physiology. Do, do we know exactly, is it like fixed where if you had a given amount of time, a minute, whatever the given amount of time is, and you had unlimited substrate, those two categories, fat and carbohydrates, of how much the difference of ATP output is, or is that dependent on how well the machine, meaning how, how well is your metabolic processes uh, operating in, in that moment, given all the environmental inputs and such? So yes, and yes to both. There, of course, is always going to be context involved uh, where the, it's going to depend on where our nutrient status is and what tissue we're talking about and all of that. But with kind of all things being equal, we do have the actual answers as far as the amount of ATP, like the difference in rate of ATP production. I wanna say that with carbohydrates, it's about 2.3 times greater I want to say it's the right number in terms oh, of wow. ATP production. That's a lot. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. And I have the quote. I was trying to find the quote real quick, but uh, maybe I'll send you a uh, send it to you after so that we can make sure I got the right number there. But it's considerably more. Hmm. Wow. That to me that sounds like a big difference. Um, one of the other things that you've mentioned a couple times, I think I alluded to also that we create more of um, is carbon dioxide. I don't think it's quite 2.3 times as much, but when utilizing carbohydrates to make energy, as opposed to from using fatty acids to make energy, there's a lot more carbon dioxide. I know in my experience, I have had a history of these sensations of um, what I would consider, I guess I'd have to label it as like air hunger on some level, like an inability to relax my breath, especially on the exhale. And that might be one of the reasons I'm so passionate about doing breath work. And it's interesting because in the breath work world, whether it's yogic pranayamic uh, practices or kind of these modern breath work modalities that are popping up over the last several years, there's a very big focus on carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide tolerance, like getting your body to produce more and be okay with having more because our body's relying on that as a signal to actually oxygenate our tissues. So I don't know what my question was there. Can you speak a little bit on the carbon dioxide component of, of that cellular metabolism? when relating the carbohydrate to the fat for fuel? Is that a clear question? Not yeah, really. well, <laughs> I can run with it. <laughs> the, so in, when we're talking about that biochemistry, the, the kind of basically laid out process, we will produce 50% more, uh, more carbon dioxide with carb burning versus fat burning if they're happening at the same rate of ATP production. So if we consider that we're maybe producing this at a two to three times faster rate, then maybe we're looking at much more. Maybe it's oh, you know wow. 150% more carbon dioxide with carb burning versus fat burning. So it's you know that would be another if we consider time there, it's even more. As you're getting it, there's a reason why carbo carbon dioxide production is so important, and that's be on one hand it helps to oxygenate our cells. So if our cell is producing enough carbon dioxide, that carbon dioxide gets released and creates a, an area around the cell where when hemoglobin, the red blood cell containing hemoglobin comes by, it can easily drop off the oxygen and trade it for carbon dioxide. If the cell is not producing a lot of carbon dioxide, it will not be anywhere near as easy for hemoglobin to release the oxygen. So you're not going to get that oxygen uptake at the cell anywhere near as much when you're not producing a lot of carbon dioxide. So that's one important piece. And then the opposite happens at the uh, at the lungs, where we can't take up oxygen from the air as well if we're not bringing a lot of hemoglobin that already has the carbon dioxide to the lungs. And so, we're not not only are we not oxygenating our tissues as well, but then we also can't even take up as much oxygen from the air in our lungs when we don't have enough carbon dioxide being produced. So it's really central to the entire reason why we breathe which or at least the main reason why we breathe which is to bring oxygen to our cells in a controlled way and so as you're mentioning especially more recently with a couple of the big uh, movements in terms of breathing practices there's a lot of 
encouragement about the idea that increasing carbon dioxide levels is actually better for our breathing, helps us slow our breathing down, helps us with oxygenation. And in people who are hyperventilating and they're having trouble getting oxygen and they're feeling that air hunger, uh, especially you know if they're in extreme levels, maybe someone's dealing with COPD or something like that, a huge factor there is they're hypocapnic, meaning that they have low amounts of CO2. And that directly impairs our ability to utilize uh, and, and uptake oxygen and oxygenate our cells. So that's a central reason and something that we can help to manipulate with our breath. We can slow our breathing down, make it very uh, you know, slow and also kind of calm and more passive. That helps a lot to help us retain carbon dioxide. But another huge piece here is producing more carbon dioxide at the cellular level. And those things go hand in hand. It's not like we just happen to be it's not like we just happen to hyperventilate when we're in a degenerative state right. that is driven by the physiology that underlies it. So. Yeah. And that's another thing that I have noticed from over these last uh, couple of months of adding these carbohydrates. That is just, it's a, I guess it's a symptom that I see being relieved this um, especially would happen in the evening where I felt like I had to do a breath section, a session to fix this thing, this, I'm not getting enough air feeling. And that seems to be going away, uh, which is really meaningful. I mean, I can't really uh, overstate like how impactful that is. Feeling like you're hungry for air is a terrible sensation. I mean, just think about it. I mean, we breathe a lot. It's a big part of our life. And the feeling like you are starving for it is, is not good. And wow, yeah. I'm blown away that that's <laughs> just like, go. this is something I've dealt with since, at least since uh, 2017. And it's just oh. going away. Yeah, there is physiology underpinning that or I shouldn't, I mean, we already talked about some of the physiology, but there's research in terms of um, showing this in patients who are especially dealing with anxiety and panic attacks. One of the main drivers there is that they have trouble producing carbon dioxide and they lean toward lactic acid production in the cell. So when our cells don't use glucose all the way, they aren't able to effectively convert it to ATP. They have to convert it to lactate or lactic acid. And having high amounts of lactic acid production with poor CO2 production is has been shown to drive hyperventilation and drive anxiety and panic attack and panic disorders. So you see this this happening on kind of a, a more extreme level and kind of fully parsed out from the mechanisms to the actual real world application and conditions. And you also see a parallel effect. Another very clear example is when somebody gets altitude sickness. It's a very similar effect. Mm -hmm. But in this case, instead of being caused first by what's happening at the cells, it's caused first by lower uh, oxygen in the environment. But it, if somebody experiences altitude sickness, it's the same issue where their cells begin to produce a lot of lactic acid and they can't properly oxygenate. And that causes this sickness for a period of time. Gotcha. I know for the listeners out there, there's some of you that are probably screaming some questions in your head um, that I don't think we could dive into now. One being like, but what about diabetes? And what I'm going to do is just encourage you to go to Jay's uh, channel and um, and go through that a little bit, learn a little bit more and get a little bit more context around how some of these common disease pathologies emerge out of um, a, a state of stress that are that will tie and connect a lot of these dots that we're 
like really briefly touching on today because we're limited by time. Um, I, I'd like to kind of maybe recap and then get um, maybe some actionable tips of for someone that wants to just dip their toe in, like the easiest way to experiment if you've been uh, really trying to restrict carbohydrates, carbohydrates, how to maybe uh, in it, you know, integrate them in your life and in, in like a safe way or, or whatever. Um, but in general, what I'm getting at is hormones are really important and they run the show and managing them really requires us to manage stress in general. And the stress comes in all kinds of forms. And there's a lot of tools we have to manage that stress, but dietarily, a big liver lever that we have to interact with that stress response is giving our body its favorite fuel source, which is carbohydrates. And when you look at the physiology, it's hard to argue that there is an anti-stress component to it. Um, there are other things that can affect how well we are taking the substrates and making energy out of that food that really just carries a potential for energy. And there's things that interfere with that. There's a couple things that interfere with it that you folks, that you and Mike reference a lot through your channel. One being um, like endotoxin is a word I hear a lot. And one being PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acids, which I think more and more are being learned as um, more problematic than we once thought maybe just five, 10 years ago. They're really uh, infiltrate our food system through the use of different seed oils and vegetable oils. I don't want to get into those too much, um, but maybe we could just very briefly touch on both endotoxin and polyunsaturated fatty acids and how they relate to interfering with our body's ability to be as efficient as possible to take the food we eat and make all these ATP, make the energy out of it. Can we, can we do that in just, uh, I don't know, five minutes each topic? Is that, is that a lot to ask? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can at least give, <laughs> give a taste. So you, you touched on something important, which is, again, the things that affect our ability to produce energy and the difference between having carbohydrates versus, you know, having carbohydrates and normal amounts of blood sugar and insulin versus a diabetic or insulin resistant state. And so the one thing I would mention there is that in an insulin resistant or diabetic state, this is a state where we aren't effectively using the carbohydrates to convert them into energy. We're having trouble with that process. That process is being inhibited by maybe one of these two things that we'll talk about among others. And that is what leads to that state. What does not lead to that state is proper usage of carbohydrates that are coming in. A high carb diet does not create the state of insulin resistance and diabetes. As quick examples, we can look at the uh, indigenous or tribal populations that have basically higher carb diets than anywhere else in the world, sometimes 70 plus percent, sometimes 80 plus percent, and they have incredible glucose tolerance. They have incredible insulin sensitivity and there's, they're not diabetic in any sense of the, world, of the word. They're not overweight or anything like that. And they're pretty much absent of disease. So I, I think that is an important piece here. And the other piece is 
there are a lot of things that affect our ability to produce energy from the foods that are coming in, whether it is carbs or fats as our main energy sources, but especially with carbs, carbs are carb metabolism, glucose metabolism is very sensitive to nutrient availability, exposure to certain toxins, exposure to, to other things. So coming to that answer, endotoxin is one of those huge ones. And some people have a bit of a reflex when you say something is a toxin. I think the word toxin is a little overused, but when we're talking about endotoxin, this is actually a word that's used throughout the literature. And what it's referring to is a, uh, a toxic component of bacteria that's called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And they are this, the presence of this endotoxin is found in virtually every degenerative state, whether we're talking about heart disease or diabetes or fatty liver disease or you know, neurodegenerative diseases, you find mild endotoxemia, mild amount, mild levels of excess endotoxin. And the reason for that is because endotoxin is not only an easy way to create a lot of inflammation and oxidative stress to the point that it's used in studies to measure that. But basically, if you want to see if something is anti-inflammatory or protective, you see how well the cell or the organism responds to endotoxin when you have this other thing that's supposed to be protective. It's just ubiquitous. It is known as one of the major things that drives inflammation. So wait, you mean scientists, when conducting a study, will inject something or some organism with endotoxin to create a, a state of stress so that they could see if their intervention helps it? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes they're trying to see if they can save a mouse. If a mouse is injected with a decent amount of endotoxin, it'll die. So sometimes you're trying to see will this anti-inflammatory thing prevent death from endotoxin? Mm. So it's, it's pretty powerful, endotoxin is. And the way that it creates these issues, part of the reason why it's so inflammatory, but also its main problematic effect is that it directly inhi inhibits or impairs our ability to produce energy, especially from carbohydrates. So what this means in a practical sense, not if you're getting injected with it, but if you have a gut microbiome that is out of balance, if you have overgrowth of harmful bacteria, uh, especially if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, these are going to be situations of excessively high endotoxin production and absorption. And that's going to be a major factor that impairs our ability to produce energy from the food that's coming in and especially the carbohydrates. So that is part of why I'd say gut health is such an important aspect of our, of our overall health and reducing endotoxin is a major focus um, from the bioenergetic view for that reason. Jay, is that reason for somebody to go slower when adding carbohydrate, if they are in a state where they think they or have evidence through lab work or whatever to help their doctor, that gives them reason to believe that their current level of endotoxin is higher than ideal? Is that reason to not try to turn up the metabolism with the carbohydrates as quickly? So... Most of the time, unless somebody is already very lean, already with a good amount of muscle mass, outside of those scenarios, I almost always recommend starting slow with the carbohydrates, starting with slow absorbed carbohydrates, you know, fruits, uh, especially maybe some cooked roots and tubers, because even if there's no other underlying pathology, if we're in kind of a fat burning state for especially a long period of time, the enzymes that produce energy from carbohydrates have been turned down our whole system has been oriented toward burning more fat. And so it takes time to shift out of that uh, and also takes time for stress hormones to shift down and thyroid hormones to shift up and things like that. So I almost always recommend starting a little slower there to minimize any negative effects. 
if somebody's dealing with gut issues and high endotoxin, which is very common, and especially common if you get benefits from keto, low-carb, fasting, almost all of that or a huge portion of that is mediated mediated through relieving the gut of, of anything that could feed the bacteria and therefore relieving yourself of endotoxin. So if you were somebody who had a lot of benefits from that, uh, especially at first, then, or even for, you know, months and months on end or years, a lot, you know, there's a good chance that there are some gut issues there and there's excess endotoxin production that will come back if you start to feed carbohydrates. So that's a scenario where I would favor, especially very easily digested carbohydrates. I might favor more of the juices, maybe some of the maple syrup and honey, as you were talking about, uh, you know, again, starting slow for most people, I think is the best approach and maybe leaning towards some more low FODMAP fruits, things that are going to be much less likely to feed the bacteria. Because if you have those overgrowth issues, if you have a lot of endotoxin production and you start consuming a lot of carbohydrates that feed that, that are very fibrous or have a lot of fermentable carbs, uh, that will oftentimes trigger an issue. Uh, and that's, yeah. So you, that's you basically want to keep down the amount of volume that's like lingering in the large intestine, like fibers. Mm -hmm. If you're in that scenario, if you're in that scenario, or just in general, if you're looking to dip your, you know, to, um, to like tinker with this, uh, model a little bit, you just want to go with things that are more likely to digest quickly, more easily, and maybe higher in the small intestines where they're just not sitting in you for as long, giving chance for any bacteria, especially dysbiotic collection of them to uh, play with those fibers and eat, eat more stuff. Is yeah. the endotoxin like a byproduct of their metabolism or is it part of their structure that when, as they grow and die or whatever, just gets released? Do you know? Both. Yeah. So oh, it's okay. a part of their cell wall. It's a part of the bacterial cell wall. So if bacteria grow and then die and all of that, there'll be endotoxin but they also produce it and secrete it when they're being fed, like as they're feeding. So and how you know. would that show for someone? If someone was like high in endotoxin, would that show in like a histamine response Would when they eat food? Or is there traditional ways that that shows up? Is it like bloated from like the gas that the bacteria is producing? The clearest symptoms will be gut related symptoms. If you're having indigestion, well, Indigestion can be other factors too, but if you're having the bloating and gas, if you're maybe having some gut pain, if you feel foggy, if you feel inflamed or puffy after eating certain things, those could all be indicators of in inflammation or inflammatory state that's induced by endotoxin. Sometimes skin issues could be something as well. You know, all of the things that we pointed to when we talked about leaky gut and gut permeability back in the paleo days. Those sorts of things are largely mediated by endotoxin because when our, our gut's permeable, we absorb a lot more endotoxin. So all of the things that we would maybe attribute to that could really be attributed to the toxic effects of LPS or endotoxin. Okay. So it can be a pretty wide variety of symptoms. And this is part of why doing things slowly and carefully can really help because you can identify whether you're feeling better or worse from introducing certain foods. And uh, this is a reason, as you were saying, to stick to the foods that are least likely to cause that sort of effect in the beginning especially when we consider if we're under stress for a long time from low carb diet, fasting, or chronic health issues, all of our digestive capacity gets turned down. Our motility tends to slow down. Stomach acid tends to be reduced. Bile flow be, you know, becomes reduced because of low thyroid hormone. So we're already typically in a compromised state there. And so we do want to be pretty careful. 
not to lead to that production. Yeah, I think I experienced all those things you just mentioned. And um, it's interesting because the bile, I think, is, I guess, an unsung hero in our um, physiology and doesn't get enough discussion. And I have noticed also that I feel like there's an improvement in that in the bile uh, category. And you get you guys mentioned that, if I recall, that bile also serves a purpose of keeping our small intestine clear of of SIBO and keeping the bacteria growth in check. Like we want it, but we don't want too much. And that's one of the mechanisms that our body naturally kind of keeps us cleaned out from it going uh, either too much or too high up the chain from the large intestine to the small. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those primary mechanisms. Uh, which is that it does help to digest fats, of course, and this is part of why we want to consume enough fats, is that the fats have an antimicrobial effect, but bile has a much stronger one. And so when we do release that bile through the small intestine, it does help to function as an antibiotic to keep bacteria out of there. We don't want to have bacteria in the small intestine. So it, that's a pretty central piece. And having good motility, having good uh, muscular contraction throughout the intestines is another important thing, because if that food is lingering there, that gives a lot of time for bacteria to grow higher and like to, to continue to feed on it, but also grow higher and higher up in the intestines as well. Okay. Um, I know that was more than a few minutes. Do we have time to touch on poofas for a moment and then we'll wrap it up? Sure. Yeah. All right. Give us the poofa 101. How does that interfere with um, us, you know, having a robust metabolism? So PUFA are, as you said, the polyunsaturated fats, and this is the omega-6s and omega-3s. And so we contrast those with the monounsaturated fats and the saturated fats. So these PUFAs are very high in vegetable and seed oils, canola oil. Most of the the oils that are used for cooking, especially in restaurants and frying foods, there are exceptions when it comes to vegetable oils, which is olive oil, palm oil, and coconut oil, uh, and avocado oil. All of those are relatively low in PUFA. Uh, so those ones wouldn't fall in this category. Uh, PUFA are also found in fatty chicken and fatty pork if they're not fed a really perfect diet, uh, if they're fed a lot of grains and seeds and those kinds of things, which are used to fatten those animals up. And uh, that's because those are all very high in PUFA. So grains, seeds, all of their oils, those sorts of unsaturated fats. And the... Short answer in terms of physiology is that these fats are much less stable than their monounsaturated and saturated fat counterparts. We're talking hundreds of times less stable. And so because of that, they're very susceptible to damage. This is why if you get a flaxseed oil or fish seed oil off the shelf, it needs to be very fresh. It needs to be in dark glass and you know, an amber glass. You need to keep it in the fridge, all these things to keep it stable. Of course, then we put it into our very unstable digestive system or 98 degree temperature, you know, bodies with oxygen and everything. So they, when we have that, when we consume these oils, or especially if we cook with them, they become damaged, they become oxidized very easily. And that is a potent driver of inflammation internally. Why is that? Do you know how an oxidized seed oil, PUFA, um, generates inflammation? Yeah, so the double bond, so when we're talking about saturation and unsaturation, what it means is it has to do with the amount of hydrogens on the carbon chain. And when that carbon chain is fully saturated with hydrogens, we call it a saturated fat, and every level of it being unsaturated is a place where we have a double bond in place of hydrogen. And so those double bonds, this is like a, like a, like a biochemical 
effect. Those double bonds are very susceptible to interaction with free radicals, which are oxidizing agents, ox things that cause oxidative stress. And so when they interact with these free radicals, it creates what are called peroxidized fats, which are their own kind of free radical type um, oxidants that will then go and amplify that effect and cause damage to our protein and our DNA. They, they really cause this whole oxidatively stressful effect. And we find high levels of these in atherosclerosis and plaque, we find high, high levels of these in neurodegenerative states inside of our brain. We find them in our liver when we have fatty liver disease. This is, this is like a hallmark of inflammation. It's a hallmark of chronic health issues. Um, so it's just destructive. It's not like there's a positive side to that. And there's just this other cost associated with the positive thing. It's just, it's like liquid inflammation just added to our diet. When they're damaged, yes, there is a biological function for these. And so when we look at when they're used in, in the like animal kingdom or biological kingdom, it tends to be in very low temperature environments where they're very less, uh, where they have much less concern over getting damaged. So one of those would be fatty fish that live in particularly cold water. They're going to need to have a lot of these unsaturated fats, a lot of the omega-3s. So that way they, if you think of like, <laughs> If their fat was all very solid, they wouldn't be able to swim and stay down. They would just float up to the surface. A lot of biological functions couldn't happen. And so oh. they need to have so they need to have some unsaturated fats to function in low temperature. And the same thing it's happens. More fluid. Like yes. for the very reason that they will stay liquid, like on the counter, as opposed to a saturated uh -huh. fat like butter or coconut oil that will solidify. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. And that same thing happens in nature in terms of seeds and nuts. So when you grow those things in tropical climates, they can be much more saturated without a problem. When you take the same seed and grow it in a cold climate, it'll have a lot more of the unsaturated fats because it needs to be able to function and not die in a very, very cold environment, maybe through the winter so that it can germinate and be biologically active in the spring where oh. it's still pretty cold. That's so they tend to be cold temperature type fats. And when they're in that cold temperature, not in a 98 degree body, they're much less prone to these issues. And also those are, of course, much less metabolically active organisms. You know what? So if you're going to eat PUFA, just um, lay in your cold plunge while you consume them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But, you know, I, mean, I know you're joking, but, you know, our, our body temperature is really not going to decrease all that much. And if it does, that's normally a sign of low it's thyroid, low metabolism. It's a problem. Yeah. yeah. So they really don't function too well with our biology. And the other main area you see polyunsaturated fats having an important role in biology is in hibernation. So if you look at the animals that try to fatten up and hibernate for the winter, like bears, for example, they consume a lot of polyunsaturated fats between fatty fish and also nuts and seeds. If you look at squirrels eating acorns, you know, those sorts of things are really helpful for slowing metabolism down and allowing for hibernation. They're actually necessary. You need to have omega-6s to allow for hibernation. If you take away the omega-6, the hibernation won't happen. And they also are helpful for fattening animals up for something like winter to get through those sorts of periods. Uh, they also happen to work really well for fattening livestock up, which is why they were used for that and still are used for that. And they also happen to be pretty good at fattening humans up as well, but that part right. isn't talked about as much. That's interesting. Are there any animals like closer to us um, than like bears and squirrels that have a hibernating like season? Or maybe are we supposed to hibernate and we just don't know? Well, we, didn't get, we didn't get the memo. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if you look at our evolutionary lineage, we've been in tropical climates for millions and millions of years. It's only been 
the last maybe 40,000, I believe, 40,000 years out of the 9 million, you know, and more of evolution through apes, where we actually left pretty warm climates. Uh, so I, I would say that we're better off in warmer climates and the fats and our function and our biological activity all are associated with that. So, uh, I, yeah, I don't know of too many animals similar to us that really go through that sort of hibernation. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's, that's it. I'm moving. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and luckily now we have the ability to live in these colder climates with technology or fire or, you know, originally it was fire and then it was, you know, heating systems and everything. So we can mitigate a lot of those effects, but uh, I do think there's still some biological. That's a really there. important concept, like that, um, that framework that we haven't been uh, very far removed from, like equatorial regions for very long in the scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're it's a huge... we're like fighting against evolution by spreading out. Not that it wouldn't, in turn, we would. I would assume adapt, but maybe we're in the infancy stage of that adaptation still. Well, and that's the the point, a a huge piece here when we're talking about energy and structure in terms of evolution is that adaptation doesn't mean that we get away with functioning as well as we possibly can in a cold climate or in a climate with poor food. Our adaptation to that comes at the cost of energy. So we can say that we can adapt to a vegan diet. That adaptation might require losing muscle mass and smaller stature and, you know, less bone density. You know, there's and we can survive with those things. I'm just picking, you know, I'm not trying to just pick on vegans. I mean, there, I think there's problems with a lot of different diets, but adaptation is not a free lunch. It is directly dependent on the energetic environment uh, availability of our environment. And so if we're adapting to a low energy environment, it's going to come at some cost to our structure and function. If we're adapting to a high environment, it'll come at a benefit to those things. So I would say that that's why we don't want to adapt to a high, uh, high fat, low carb diet, or why we don't want to adapt to a lot of fasting, or we don't want to adapt to a super cold environment, a lot of, you know, exposure there. I think we're much better off if we uh, are adapting to the opposite of those things. That's really interesting. Uh, Well said, man. That's, that gets my brain turning. Um, I love your take, man. I love what you do. Uh, Jay, again, I'm grateful for what you do. And I thank you for taking the time today to um, talk to me and bring the audience along for the ride. Um, and of course, uh, please let Mike know I'm grateful for his part in it too. And I would love to have a follow-up with Mike, maybe get into more details of like, what does the day look like? Maybe talk a little bit about what, how I've been experimenting, how I've been putting through my, um, like my food plan, how it's changed and maybe get the opinion of, um, of your partner and, and see, um, you know, and, and let the audience hear that. If people want to learn more, you've already mentioned your YouTube channel. Can you go ahead and go over that again? Yeah, yeah, of course. And of course, I want to say as well, thank you very much for having me. And it's been a fun conversation and I appreciate your enthusiasm and everything. So, uh, yeah, but uh, so my podcast is called the Energy Balance Podcast. And as you were saying, it is available on YouTube as well on my Jay Feldman Wellness channel. If people are looking for some real practical takeaways, uh, maybe a little bit quicker and, and kind of nicely laid out, I have a free Energy Balance mini course that they can sign up for and kind of goes through what we want to do in terms of nutrition and diet and lifestyle and stress and movement in some basic terms with some kind of easy to take away uh, strategies. And so listeners can sign up for that at jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And 
if they're looking for other resources, again, my website, jfeldmanwellness.com. I've got free articles. I've got links to all the podcast episodes and uh, you can check those out as well. And, you know, I think links to social media and everything on Instagram, it's JF Wellness, the letters JF Wellness. I think that's Great. pretty much everything. Thanks. And yeah, and listeners out there, I encourage you to go check it out. It's a fantastic resource. And if you want to learn more, check out the course. And uh, I'm always grateful for you guys tuning in to listen. If you have been, you know, on a similar journey, playing with different diets and found yourself in the low carb world and finding a lot of benefits, but also finding maybe some some costs along the way and you want to uh, explore and you have an open mind. I highly recommend uh, learning more and giving it a try and, you know, uh, tinker and then let the community know what that's done for you and what you notice. I'm always grateful for you tuning and listening. If you also, if you know someone else that you think is in that situation, please share the the episode. Jay, thanks again. Um, And everybody out there, I, I hope you have a great day. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. I hope you got some value out of this episode. I feel like we went over a lot of topics It was a lot of information, and I understand if it was a little over your head for some of you folks, but if you're intrigued and you want to learn more, then follow Jay's work, and please share with the audience anything you notice if you do tinker around and try some of their ideas. I highly encourage it, especially if you feel like uh, you're on a similar journey where you're trying to do things uh, to serve your sense of well-being better and you don't really feel like you're getting uh, moving in the direction that you want. So I encourage you to keep an open mind and not be attached to the beliefs that you have about you know, health decisions, especially regarding food. Um, it reminds me of a saying from Thich Nhat Hanh that knowledge is the biggest obstacle to understanding. So keep an open mind, stay curious, and Um, keep seeking a more deeper level of understanding. Once again, I appreciate your listening as always, and I hope everybody has a terrific day.